I should like to call your attention this evening to the message of that seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, which I read to you at the beginning, with special emphasis, perhaps, upon verses 9 to 14, verses 9 to 14, in the seventh chapter of the book of the prophet Daniel. I beheld till the thrones were set, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. I wonder whether there is someone in this congregation who is now saying to himself or herself, what has all that got to do with us here in London, in Great Britain, on Armistice Sunday night in 1957. Surely this person is saying, at a time like this, with so much trouble and confusion and unhappiness in the world, surely you have some relevant message for us, some word of comfort, of strength, or of hope to give us. Why therefore take us to the book of the prophet Daniel and to that seventh chapter which you have already read to us. Now I have no doubt that that may be in the minds of many. For we know that the world tonight uh, consists of people who have their varying views of this book which we call the Bible and of its message. There are some indeed who do not hesitate to assert that the whole Bible and its entire message is utterly irrelevant that it's got nothing to say today at all, and that it's a sheer and an utter waste of time to read it or to consider it. It's all right to say it's a book of religion, as there are other books of religion, old, ancient, oldest book in the world, and therefore out of date and with nothing at all to say to us. There are many who take that view of it. There are others who take a slightly different view. They say, no, that's not correct. They say the Bible has got a message for today, and there is a sense, they say, in which the Bible is not only relevant, but very relevant. 
But uh, what they say is this, that the Bible is of value and is relevant in the sense that it contains a moral teaching, an ethical teaching, which the world is sadly in need of. They say, don't waste your time with the Old Testament, and especially don't waste your time with these prophets. That's something that belongs to the realm of fancy and of fantasy. They say, we're not interested in that. But they say they are interested in the New Testament, and in particular, in particular with the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. They say the greatest need in the world tonight is the application of the Sermon on the Mount. And if only men and women can be persuaded to live and to practice the Sermon on the Mount and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, not only in their personal lives, but in their international relationships, then, they say, everything would be all right. So they think that the Bible is of help and of value in that way, that reading it and understanding its message, it is the business of the church to... uh, urge men and women to protest against the manufacture of hydrogen bombs and other bombs. And it is the business of the church to urge the statesmen to call disarmament conferences and put an end to all this kind of thing that is going on, and that we are to just urge people to take up the ethic and the morality of Jesus of Nazareth and to put it into practice. And you have... No doubt, I'm sure, in your minds that that is something which is being said by large numbers this evening. That that is the relevance of the Bible to the present position. Well, I'm here this evening to suggest to you that both those views of the Bible are altogether and entirely wrong. Let me put it to you like this. The Bible, I want to assert this evening, is not only relevant to the present position, it alone is relevant. I'm making that as a a challenge. I am suggesting to you that as you look out upon the world as it is this evening, and ask any teaching that you may like to mention, Apart from this, to give you an explanation of why things are as they are, that you will find that they cannot do so. And the majority of them are honest enough to admit it and to confess it. They just do not understand. Because most of the views outside the Bible have taken a very optimistic view of men. They believe that men is growing and developing, that he's becoming wiser and wiser, And as he becomes more and more educated and is able to manifest his marvelous powers, so he will solve all his problems and his world will be made perfect. So believing something like that, they are quite dumbfounded as they see the world as it is at the present time. This century has been inexplicable to them. They can't understand it. Their only attempt at an explanation is to say this, that in this marvelous evolutionary process, sometimes for no known reason, you get this kind of chaotic element intruding itself. And they can but hope that it will soon come to an end and that the forward march and development of the human race will be continued. In other words, they really don't understand. They are bankrupt 
Now, I'm saying that you can take any view you like outside this view. And you will find that that is its position at the present time. But here is something that is relevant. And why? Well, I say because it has a message. And if we really look at its message, not what we think it ought to be, if we take its message as a whole and not merely shed the whole of the Old Testament and most of the New and pick out just something that we happen to like, if we take the whole message of the Bible, we shall find a most amazing relevance to this very evening in this way. The Bible I want to try to show you tonight really does explain to us why things are as they are in this world at this present time. You know, it even goes further than that. I want to show you tonight that the Bible even prophesied thousands of years ago that the world now would be exactly as it is now. It goes as far as that. It not only provides me with an understanding and an explanation of why man has brought such chaos into his world, I say it even prophesies and predicts that, and that things would be as they are, it goes further. It foretells the future. It gives us an understanding of what is yet going to be in the history of this world. Now, that's a tremendous claim, I know. And I want to try to substantiate my assertion and my claim. Here I say, then, we are presented with history. Here we have prophecies which foretell history, and this is what's interesting. Much of the history that is foretold in the Bible has already come to pass. That is something that we mustn't forget. There is here in the Old Testament prophecy concerning future events. Now, it's astounding and amazing to notice how many of the things that are prophesied have already literally and actually come to pass. And therefore I say, bearing that in mind, it surely behoves us to be very careful as we consider what the Bible has to say with respect to what is yet going to come to pass. The verity and the truth of the Bible can therefore be tested by history that has already taken place. And as we find this verification, I say it should modify our attitude with regard to the prophecies and predictions of the scriptures with regard to the future. Now then, all this is something that is demonstrated in this seventh chapter of this book of Daniel. And that is why I'm calling your attention to it tonight. It's a perfect illustration of what I've been saying about the Bible's view of history. It's a typical example of it. It's all here, as it were, in one chapter. Now, you remember that uh, this all came to Daniel in the form of a dream. He tells us at the very beginning. You remember the introduction. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. And then the rest of the, chapters, the chapter gives us the account. What is this? Well, you know what we have here 
is God giving his servant, this prophet Daniel, a preview of history. He was just telling Daniel what was going to happen. Not merely to his own nation and people, but to these other nations. To the nation, for instance, that had recently conquered the children of Israel and carried them away captive into Babylon. For when this happened to Daniel, he was a prisoner with the rest of his people in Babylon. He was a slave. And it was while they were there that God gave this man this vision in the form of a dream. In order that he might know the future of his own people. Yes, but beyond that. In order that he might make known unto him this preview of the history of the human race and of God's purposes with respect to this world. Therefore, I think I can show you that in this one chapter, in the compass of just this one chapter, we are given the knowledge of the very things that are most essential for us to know this very night. I'm assuming that you're all concerned as I am about the state of our world. Ah, oh, miss this day, what's it remind us of? Remembrance Sunday, what's it point to? Two world wars with their devastation, with the death of loved ones, with homes broken, with all the tragedy of war. And here are the nations still preparing for war. Now, that's the problem. What is it all about? Why is it? Why is men behaving like this? Is there any glimmer of hope? Is there any understanding? What of the future? I say that all those questions are dealt with and are answered in this one chapter. Now, let's not be troubled by the form which the message takes. Daniel, I say, was given the message in a dream. And everything that was told him in the dream was given him in terms of symbols and of pictures. That's the usual thing in a dream, isn't it? And you will find that often, indeed, generally in the scriptures, these prophecies are given in the form of pictures and of symbols. Very well, then, what is the message? In its essence, the message is this. That there are two types of history in connection with this world and the story of the human race. There are two types, two kinds of history. Or if you prefer it in other language, there are two standpoints or points of view which we can take with respect to what we see happening before our eyes at the present moment. Let me put it like this. One history is a history from the standpoint of earth and of men. The other history is the history from the standpoint of heaven, from the standpoint of God. Now then, what we've got, you see, in this one chapter is an account of the two histories in a most amazing and astonishing manner, bringing us right up to date, extremely relevant, explaining why things are as they are and giving us an insight into the future that lies ahead of us. Very well, all I'm going to ask you to do is to join with me now as we look together at these two types of history. My task this evening is an unusually simple one.
All I've got to do is to hold the pictures before you. We've not only got the pictures, we've even got the comments on the pictures. And all I have, I say, is to remind you of it and to underline the various things that we are told here. Two types of history. The first type of history that we've got to look at is history from the standpoint of earth. History in terms of men, or if you like, the history that man produces. Now, we are facing history tonight, aren't we? You see, we can't meet together on a day like this without considering history. We are in it, we are involved in it, and we are the inheritors of what has happened in it. And this is our major problem today, the problem of history. What is happening in the world? What is the explanation of what we're looking upon tonight? I say the answer is, it's man's history. This is the history that man is producing. This is the history you find in your newspapers, in your secular textbooks of history. What is it? Well, we can put it like this. This is the Bible's way of putting it. This is the history of men without God. This is the history of men in sin. This is the history that man produces when he takes control himself and God allows him to do so and abandons him to his fate. That is the first history we are going to look at. It is shown here very plainly and with a terrible kind of clarity. You remember the four beasts that arose from the earth, don't you? How they came up one after the other. Well, the explanation is given to the prophet. And what he was told is this, do you see? That the first beast represents the kingdom of Babylon under which he was a slave at that moment. The message says that that is to be followed by another kingdom. It was indeed the Medo-Persian kingdom. It actually happened. And the characteristics of the two kingdoms are put here quite plainly, but that in turn was to be replaced by a third kingdom, again different. This is the kingdom of Greece, Alexander the Great, again different. And then there is to be a fourth kingdom, still altogether different, more mighty than all the others. What is this? This is the Roman Empire. Now, here is a man, I say, in the 5th century, who was given a preview of all this, and exactly as it was revealed to him, so it came to pass. When Daniel was given this vision, Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon seemed to be absolutely invincible. But they were conquered, and they went, and the other arose, and that appeared invincible, but it went. And the next came, Alexander the Great, Here's the greatest captain of all, surely never to be defeated. But he was, he died at a comparatively early age, and his kingdom was divided, and Rome arose, the Roman Empire. Now, the point I'm making is that this is actual history. What was revealed to Daniel ahead of time literally came to pass in time. But that isn't the thing which I want to emphasize this evening. There is something here which is more than the literal and the actual history. And so often people, because they've been tied by a materialistic interpretation, have really missed the great spiritual message of this mighty chapter. What is it? Well, it's this. What we are really shown here is the character of man 
as a sinner and a rebel against God. Man setting up his own kingdoms, man setting up his own government, man trying to run the world instead of submitting to God and obeying his commandments and allowing God, as it were, to run the world. What are the characteristics? Well, here they are. And if this isn't a description of the world as it is tonight, where do you find one? Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. What are we looking at? We are looking at a storm. We are looking at a mighty storm at sea. The wind blowing, the gale howling, coming from all directions, a kind of hurricane, north, south, east, and west, changing its course, and the turmoil, and the boiling of the waters, and the billows rising, a sea in terrible turmoil. That's the picture. Storm and trouble. Isn't that the history of the world? Read your history books. What is history? It's a history of wars and desolations and famines and ruins and trouble. Go and read them. Read our own history. Read the history of Greece and Rome and Spain and all the great empires. It's just this. It's all here in this chapter. This is life. Turmoil, war, trouble, agony, strife, bloodshed. The sea, in this terrible condition because the four winds are blowing upon it. But what does it mean? Where do these winds come from and who controls these winds? Oh, the answer of the Bible to that is always perfectly plain and clear. It is God who controls the four winds of the heavens. And it is God who lets loose the four winds Upon the sea. What is the sea? Well, the sea in Scripture is generally mankind. Whenever you come across the sea in prophetic literature in the Bible, it's always a picture of mankind. Mankind without God. The nations of the world apart from God. The sea. They're always compared to the sea. And this is what we are told. That God has let loose the four winds upon the sea. Why? Well, for this reason. God forewarned mankind that if it sinned against him and broke his laws, that it would have nothing but trouble. By the sweat of thy brow thou shalt earn thy bread, said God to the men, if you sin against me. And it's happened to him. God told men in paradise when there wasn't a war and everything was perfect and there was no trouble, if you disobey my commandment, you'll go out and you'll spend your life in misery and wretchedness. And hasn't the world done so ever since? The sea is troubled because the four winds have been let loose upon it. My dear friends, whether we like it or not, we get these wars and these upheavals and these calamities because we have sinned against God. There would never have been a war if men had not sinned against God and tried to take the sovereignty and the power and the direction of life in this world into his own hands. That's the position. But it doesn't stop at that as you notice. You notice that what happens 
as the result of the storm and which goes on producing storms and increasing them is just this. These beasts. What are these? Well, the interpretation was given, you remember, to Daniel. These are kings. These are kingdoms. Yes, but you notice the way in which they're represented, not as men, but as beasts. The first was like a lion and an eagle's wing, strength and swiftness. Another beast, the second like unto a bear, raised up itself on one side at three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. A bear, again the power and certain characteristics. And then after that, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. Wonderful description, you see, of the kingdom of Greece under Alexander the Great. Again, this tremendous swiftness and power to trample and to destroy. And finally, the fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceeding strong with iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. Well, here they are, I said, but the point I'm emphasizing is this, that the only true way of representing them is as beasts, and isn't it a perfect description? Look at these great empires of which the history books make so much and of which men boast so much. What have they been? Haven't they been beasts? What has been their characteristic? Well, they've all been rapacious. They've all had a terrible greed and a lust for power and for possessions. They've all been characterized by trampling under feet, by smashing and destroying and leaving in their wake desolation and ruin and disappointment and unhappiness and sorrow. Isn't that the history of men? Hasn't that been the history of the world? Big nations are rising, trampling upon others. Wars. Why? Well, it's all greed, self-aggrandizement. Man boasting of himself and bringing this destruction and desolation in his wake. You see, it's a very perfect representation, isn't it? Human history is utterly beastly. Oh, of course, we don't see it in the case of our own nation or empire. We see it in the case of others. But the others say the same about us. Indeed, it's true of every one of us. It's man setting himself up. And yet he glories in this. And he boasts of his great history. But the Bible says it's all beastly. It can only be adequately described in these ways. And I say, read your history books. Read about the wars and the devastation that has followed. Read about the introduction of armaments and gunpowder and the blasting and the destroying and the destruction and the trampling to dust. It's all here. It's all prophesied. That's what man's history is. That's the history that man produces when he acts independently of God. And the other characteristic you notice that is emphasized here is the constant changing. They all of them, in spite of their apparent great might and invincibility, are all conquered in turn. You know, there's something to me almost laughable about all this. Here they are, you see, one after the other, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Dynasties have arisen and gone down in China. Egypt was once powerful. Spain was once holding sway. Holland. 
You can complete the list for yourself. This is history, you see. The same essential characteristic, but for a time one in the ascendant, then at another time another in the ascendant, up and down, rising and waning. They come, they appear to be invincible, but down they go, another rises. That's human history. Isn't it a perfect description? But wait a moment, says someone, I'd rather like to ask the question that Daniel himself asked. What about that little horn? You remember the fourth beast, don't you? He had ten horns. But suddenly there appeared another little horn that conquered three of them, and then he developed and expanded. And you remember we are given a description of him. Here it is in verse 8. I considered the horns... And behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth, speaking great things. Let me give you the further description. Verse 20. Even of that horn that had eyes and a mouth that spake very great things, whose look was more stout than his fellows, I beheld in the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them. And then in verse 25, And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. What does all this mean, says someone? Well, this is most remarkable, and here it is. I bring you right up to date, my friends. You see, what we are told here is this, that these earthly kingdoms will rise one after another, and up to a point they'll be chiefly and almost entirely military. They'll be godless always, but they'll be chiefly military. Oh, yes, but there's a time coming, according to this prophecy, when they will become less and less military, in a sense, and more and more intellectual, when they'll have less and less of the beast, obvious character, but will develop more and more the character of a man. This little horn has eyes of a man, and he speaks with a mouth. And he says certain things, and they're great things, and they're mighty things. Well, what does he say? Well, here I say we are given a picture of that which is going to characterize mankind towards the end of the age. Here we are coming to the climax. All the rest has been happening, as I've shown you, throughout the running centuries. But it's going to become more and more in this intellectualized form. And this is going to be the final climax, this little horn with the eyes of a man and speaking great words. What is the interpretation, says someone? Well, here it is. These are to be the characteristics of mankind when it's working up to a final climax. It's presumptuousness. It's arrogance against God. Speaking great words, speaking very great words, standing up against the God of heaven, uttering blasphemies against him, and he shall speak great words against the Most High. Now, don't misunderstand me. 
I don't want to be too particular in my application of these things, but I read in the paper recently a statement by a scoffing scientist in the world at this moment who thought that it was very clever to say this, that he was interested to observe that this satellite that the Russians have shot up into the outer atmosphere and which was able to record so much in such a marvelous manner, had not hitherto sent any report about seeing God anywhere. Speaking great words against the Most High. Man, you see, in his cleverness, is able to penetrate outer space, and he shoots his satellites. And he ridicules the whole idea of God. No report yet as to having seen him. Speaking great words. The presumptuousness, the arrogance of it all. And then the other characteristic is the persecution of God's people. Not only the ridiculing of the Bible, but the ridiculing of God's people. War on the saints of God. Blasphemy against the religion and against the Christian church. But notice this. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think, and think to change times and laws. What does this mean? Well, I don't know exactly what it does mean, but I know what really is meant by the changing of times and laws. This is the true translation. It is an attempt to change the foundations and the main conditions of life and of the actions of men in this world. That's what that really means. That isn't my translation. It's the translation of a great authority in the Hebrew language. Here it is. Shall think to change times and laws. Shall think to change the foundations and the main conditions of the life and actions of men in this world. Now, hitherto, these times and laws have been governed and controlled by God, by what we call the laws of nature, which have been put there by God, the sun and the moon, and all these things that are there in that unknown atmosphere. Man, we are told, is going to reach this pitch, that he's going to think that he can claim to change even that. Does it seem to you that he's trying to do it at the present time? Is he trying to land a satellite on the moon? Is that not going to affect the whole conditions of life in this world? Here he is penetrating outer space. If he can govern and control that, what's going to happen? It's an attempt, I say, to undermine the whole foundation of life and being and existence in this world. Where is it going to stop? Are not these latest experiments and successes, I say, such that you can see quite easily that they're going to have a profound effect upon the whole basis of life as we have hitherto known it in the long story of mankind? And, of course, he is going to try to change laws also. And isn't he doing it or trying to do it? God has placed certain laws in men and in nature. God has made a difference between male and female, man and woman. And they're made differently for a purpose. And they're made for one another. And the complement of man is not man, it's woman. 
That's nature. That's God's law. But you and I are living in a time when it's man with man and woman with woman. Let evil be my good. He will attempt to change times and laws. I'm not an alarmist. I'm not one of these people who says that he can prophesy the end of the world. But what I do know is this, that it's made very plain and clear in this book, not only here but elsewhere, that this is man in sin and as a rebel against God. This is man when he arrogates unto himself supreme power and when he turns his back on God and says he doesn't recognize God and when he takes charge of the world and here he is trying to get into that outer space and to touch the very moon itself and the constellations, and trampling upon God's laws. Isn't this man at the height of his arrogance? That's the story here. In other words, human history, man's history, is the glorification of man and his powers. It's man without God. You say the relevance of the Bible to the world and to history, isn't this it? That's why the world is as it is tonight. It's the greed, the rapacity of this beast that's in men, individually in human kingdoms. It's manifesting itself and it leaves devastation and destruction and ruin and misery in its wake. That's the history of the world. That is why things are as they are tonight. That is why the Bible prophesied they would be so. Very well, let me hurry on. Let us turn and look at history from God's standpoint or from the standpoint of heaven. And thank God for the ability to do so. What a contrast. What a change. Listen. I beheld till the thrones were set. And the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. Thank God, I say, for the change. What do I mean? I mean this. That suddenly we are able to lift up our eyes and lift up our heads and look at something above the earth and above the world. And no longer are we looking at the beast. We are looking at one who is described as the ancient of days. That is but a picture and a symbol of the eternity of God from everlasting to everlasting. Without beginning and without end, the Most High who is always there. He is not like these beasts that suddenly come and appear one after another and have their sway and are killed and destroyed. No, no. He's always there and always has been and always will be. The Ancient of Days. Above the flux of time and the changes 
of history and all its passing scenes. Oh, I say what a comfort this is, that we can look to someone who is stable and eternal and absolute and none of the rapacity of the beast, but his hair is like wool. There is a, a mildness and a glory and a softness, if I may say it. There is a love about him, the ancient of days. I'm no longer looking at that turbulent sea with all its billows and its rocking and its rolling. No, no, I'm looking at God set upon a throne there forever, immovable and immutable. And oh, the majesty, thousand thousands ministering unto him, ten thousand times ten thousand standing before him. There he is in his glory and in his everlasting ineffable majesty. And the judgment is set. And the books are opened. And fire issues from the throne and from him. What's it all mean? My dear friend, it just means this. That while you and I in the world are so busy with these kingdoms and these beasts and all our human greatness and boasting, God is there above and beyond it all in his glory. Unaffected by it all, untouched. Uninfluenced by it all. Well, you see, if that is God, why does he allow this? I've already told you. He permits all this. He permits it because we are sinners and because we deserve punishment. He warned us. We've brought it on ourselves. He permits it. But remember, it's in his hands. We are told that these things happened only till the thrones were set. He only permits these things for a time and times and a season. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. My dear friend, if you don't understand this, you're ignorant of God. God is above it all and he's controlling it all. He allows, he permits. He's given men a free hand. He seems to hand the world over to men at times. He gives us over to a reprobate mind. But it doesn't mean he loses control. He is there. And he's still controlling. And the times are in his hands. He has permitted all this to happen. And he may yet permit much to happen. I don't know. But what I do know is this, that a day is coming when he's going to bring all that to an end, when all these beasts and all they represent shall be destroyed, as certainly as we are here, there's a limit to human history. All the beasts are to be destroyed and to be made utterly nothing. There's no improvement promised for this world. If you came in expecting me to say that there's a glimmer of hope and I think the world is going to get better, you're wrong. You're disappointed. This world will never get better. It'll always be beastly. There's only one thing to do with this world and that is to destroy it and God will destroy it. Man in sin is under wrath. He is to be punished, and as certainly as we are here, 
All the glory of men and his arrogance is going to be utterly destroyed and cast to the lake of burning. No improvement for this world. And whoever says there is, is uttering a lie. It's beast after beast after beast until the Ancient of Days shall sit and announce the last judgment and the end of time. If you are still innocent enough to put your faith in every, in any human contrivance or organization, I have nothing to say of you but that you're a fool. The world has always been saying this. But look what the world is. And it'll go on. The beast is in control. And there's only one thing to do with the beast. To destroy him utterly. And God will arise and smite him. And destroy him out of his holy sight. Well, dear me, says someone. Is that all you've got to say to us on a night like this? No, no, it isn't. I've got to say that all that is going to be destroyed and must be destroyed. But my dear friend, there's something else. There is another kingdom. Listen. I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. What's this? Well, isn't this a marvelous panorama? We've looked at man's kingdom. We've looked at God's kingdom. Have a look at Christ's kingdom. For this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a special history that comes in and through Christ. Another history, another kind of kingdom that is altogether different from the others. What's this kingdom like, you say? Not like a beast, like the Son of Man. No longer the rapacious, grasping, malicious beast, like a son of man. Like a man, like man was meant to be, like man was when God made him, like paradise, an entirely different kingdom. He's like a man, and yet he comes on the clouds of heaven. Who is this? He's a man, and yet he's not a man. He's some great regal person. Because when he comes riding the clouds of heaven, they bring him before the Ancient of Days, and he can stand before him. Who is this? This is Jesus of Nazareth, whose favorite description of himself was the Son of Man. He took over this term. He appropriated it. He said, that speaks of me. Son of man? Who is this son of man? He's a man. He's like a man. And yet he rides the clouds of heaven. He's man, yes, but he's God also. He's God-man. Here is the marvel and the miracle of the incarnation. God come in the flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, in the likeness of man. What is this? Oh, it's God in his eternal love and in his mercy and grace and compassion looking down upon the troubled sea of mankind that has brought itself to this with the beasts and the war. And in spite of it says, 
I'm going to send down into it a way of salvation, a way of deliverance. I'll form my kingdom yet. And he has done it through sending his only son into this world, one like unto a son of man, and yet riding the clouds of heaven. Jesus of Nazareth was the son of God. And he came into this world to found this kingdom, to rescue and to redeem, not to set up another rapacious kingdom, not beast-like, no, no, like a man, that man might be created anew in the image of God and of Christ and might live life as he was meant to live it. That's the message of Christianity, not an improvement of this old world. It cannot be improved. You must have a new kingdom, and God has set it in motion and in being in the person of his only begotten Son. The Son of God came down from heaven to earth to set up this kingdom. He did so not only by living a perfect life, but by dying that death on Calvary's hill, by being buried, by rising again, here is his kingdom entirely different, not of this world, not a temporary kingdom. It doesn't rise and go like the lion and the bear and the leopard and the fourth. No, no, this kingdom is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. This is an eternal kingdom and will go on throughout the countless ages of eternity. This kingdom shall never be conquered, shall never be destroyed. It is the kingdom of the Son of Men, the kingdom of peace and of righteousness. The kingdom of God, says Paul, is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. What a different kingdom. And it will go on beyond death, beyond the destruction of the world, beyond the final judgment. It will go on to all eternity. I don't know what you feel, but to me, the most urgent and the most relevant question facing every one of us at this moment is just this. Do we belong to this kingdom? If you belong to any one of the other kingdoms, if you belong to man and his ideas and his power and authority, you will be destroyed everlastingly. They alone are safe and saved who belong to this other kingdom of the Son of Men. How does one belong to this, you ask? Quite right, I can tell you. You belong to this kingdom in this way. By serving him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. They are the people, the people who serve him, the people who are saints. What does that mean? 
What does it mean to serve him? Well, it's just another term for worshipping him, for giving yourself to him. And what is a saint? A saint is a man who's been separated. A saint is a man who's been taken out of the world and separated and who lives a life as he lives, is one who follows him and goes after him. Those are the only conditions. There is only one way to enter this kingdom of the Son of Men, this kingdom of peace and of righteousness and of joy. It is to serve him. It is to recognize him as the Son of God. It is to believe that he came into the world and died on the cross to redeem us from our sins, that he bore our punishment, endured our shame, that he has risen to justify us and to present us to God. Serve him. It means religious worship. It means that I bow down before him. It means that I acknowledge and confess my sin to him. It is to say that I realize I belong to the beasts and have gloried in the beasts. Not only in the military and the earthly power, but in my own mind and brain and understanding. And in man, it's to acknowledge and confess that. It's to fall prostrate before him. To look up into his face and to ask him to receive me, to have mercy upon me, and to give myself utterly to him, to rise up and follow him, to serve him, to become a saint, to realize that nothing matters except being with him, being like him, being holy as he is holy, and knowing God as my Father and experiencing his love. There is human history, my friend. It's still going on. How long, I don't know. But if man has his own way, it'll soon come to an end. Men will blast it to nothing. But he will not do that. It's God who's going to destroy the world. Man seems to get very near it, but he never gets there. God will set the judgment, and the end will be ushered in. Have you seen... Man's history for what it is? Have you still any confidence in man or in anything he can do? Come, let me ask the other question. Have you had a glimpse of the ancient of days? God in eternity. And have you seen the son of his love? the Son of Men, as one who has come into the world and even died to rescue you and save you from this beastly human history and to separate you unto himself that he one day may present you to the Ancient of Days and to enable you to spend your eternity in his glorious presence. Amen.